Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And we've got a very special guest for the second time on the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Mr. Dan Azzi is with us. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, of course, when we first had you, uh, it was over a year ago. It was back in, I think, in November 2018. It was before any of this collapse had started to happen or anything yet. We talked extensively about the Lyra when you were on the show. I think we're going to have to revisit that uh, this time and with, with you know, a few updates. Uh, a lot has happened between November of 2018 and February of 2020, right? And, and of course, we're going to be talking as well about just the financial situation in general, what needs to be done, what's going on. And Dan is the man to guide us through that. Dan, of course, uh, former banker, former head of Standard Chartered here, and also one of sort of like the, the leading voices, you know, sort of predicting all of these financial difficulties that we've had. And he also has some, I, I guess you could say controversial ideas about what to do now as well. So really interested to get into that in a few minutes. First, of course, uh, the news of the week. This week, we had an interesting story that it just keeps up popping up in the category of politicians getting accosted in public. And uh, so we had Ziad Aswad, who is a member of parliament for Jazeen. He is a, he is a part of the free patriotic movement of Michelle Aoun. And one of the most controversial MPs like in the history of the country, probably one of the least liked MPs. Yeah, yeah, he, he's been he's been targeted twice this week. So on Tuesday, protesters showed up when the MP was having dinner in Antalyas. Um, some scuffles broke out. You know, later Aswad made some comments to the press. He told Al Jadid, "Oh, they need to know their limits." You know, uh, <laughs> we were in a private place. This is this is over the top. The next day, Wednesday, Aswad goes to dinner again. This time in Junie, protesters show up again, and there was a large scuffle. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, a bunch of Aounists, or uh, uh, perhaps involving uh, Aswad's own security detail, apparently beat protesters uh, they also use like some sectarian undertones you know basically saying like uh, are you from tripoli what did you come here to do this is kesserwin playing on that oh kesserwin is sort of like the heartland of maronite christianity or one of the heartlands of maronite christianity in lebanon and tripoli is majority sunni in anyway uh one of the alanists were was arrested after lawyers complained but the fpm ended up releasing a statement as well uh basically saying you know uh, condemning you know, violence, but also saying that insulting politicians, their lives and their dignity is unacceptable. And that this can lead to a spontaneous reaction from supporters basically saying, oh, like, wink, wink, uh, you're going to get beat up if you do this. And we, we have no control over it, even though we really do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's clear is that the FPM people weren't there by um, coincidence. The first incident happened with uh, Ziad Aswad, and then the second one was there was obviously some planning in it. Like they wanted to provoke people so that people would come. Someone posted like the location online, you know, on Facebook or somewhere. And that's how people knew where he was. So it was mostly like, come, um, try to do the same thing again and you'll see what happens. Uh, so uh, people were were uh, kind of warning each other on via WhatsApp messages saying, don't go there, it's an ambush. They're going to beat you up, etc. But some people had already been there. And one of the guys like from Tripoli, as you were talking, as you were saying, um, was like insulted and like beaten up like on video, on tape, right? The person insulting him was filming uh, himself doing it or the person next to him. And, uh, and it caused a lot of like different reactions but a lot of people were there was like a little solidarity campaign happening on social media with uh, this guy saying you know the great thing about the revolution is that we broke down these barriers between areas and you're welcome in any house in, in Kisarwan this is all this is your home like Tripoli is our home etc so but it's it's I think what this is doing is it's kind of 
showing again how there's this fight, this serious battle between political parties that are part of government and that are basically dependent on their credibility now and power and like and their apparent strength um, and the people who are part of the revolution. The FPM specifically seems to be the most hated and this yet the mo- like also the most like kind of mobilized political group against the revolution and the people of, of like the, the uprising more or less. Uh, but the most inter- interesting thing to me is that it can, we have a reversal of the situation that we had before where basically people would be afraid of confronting politicians. Now politicians are afraid of being in public places because people are there and there might be a lot of people who are part of the revolution and they might embarrass them in public. Yeah, and this is not limited just to Ziad Aswad. Also this past week, Rad Khouri, the former economy minister, had a run-in in public. We also had uh, issues with Semi Fat Fat uh, in recent weeks. So th- this is this is a general thing where politicians are, you know, need to be wary when they go out in public. Yeah, and for Atsanura Elifers, the people from across the spectrum um, have been targeted, and that's a good thing about it. And we receive every day we receive we receive like a WhatsApp message saying, you know, Taimur Jamalat is in this place or Semi Fat Fat is that place, etc. It's basically just retaliation against the long years of humiliation of the people by the politicians, uh, making them wait for 20 minutes so that their convoys can pass. Now people are saying, uh, now you fucked us up with all of your bad policies and your corruption, so you're not allowed to be in a restaurant, you know, go home and try to fix the situation or just stay at home. Also in news this week, we had a lot of media news. The Daily Star, my former employer, announced that they would be temporarily suspending their print edition. Of course, this is not something that comes as a huge surprise to anyone. We all knew that the Daily Star was having financial difficulties, um, and those have been just exacerbated in the past few months. Also this uh, this week, Radio One, which has been around since I believe the 80s, uh, is off the air. And this is this is really big. A, a lot of people listen to this, especially sort of like they were famous for sort of drive time commute type things. Listen to the radio, listen to Gavin Ford, uh, one of their longtime hosts who was uh, tragically murdered last year. And now it seems as though his entire media organization is also uh, done, at least for now. Um, on to political news. We, we did have a very big event this week on Thursday. The cabinet approved its ministerial statement. So that's going to end up going to Parliament. L- let's get into this just a, a little bit. Uh, it's, it's something like 17 pages long. It's a really, really long ministerial statement. There, there's quite a bit in there. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of ministerial statement that has everything. When you look at it, you don't know if it means that they're going to be doing a lot of things or nothing at all, because, you know, some of the things they're talking about are a bit contradictory to each other. But they try to put everything that is popular in this ministerial statement, at the same time, everything that sounds a bit kind of reassuring to the technocrats. So basically, they, they divided this, the measures or the policies uh, based on the timeline. So uh, things they're going to do within the first 100 days, things they will do within the first year, and things they will do in the, within three years. So the third one is basically assuming that the government will remain until the parliamentary elections in 2022. And mostly the, the, the short-term things are mostly about the judiciary and corruption, pass the laws for independent judiciary and pursue reforms in the criminal justice system. And a lot of things related to corruption that everyone has been talking about for a long time. 
you know, passing a national anti-corruption strategy, passing implementation decrees for some laws that have been like waiting for these decrees for a long time, like whistleblower protection or, or access to information laws. I, d- I know I shouldn't be jaded by this, but whenever I look at stuff like this and anti-corruption pushes, like I've just heard it so much that it doesn't really sound like anything to me. You know, I, I have no confidence that these measures will really actually be implemented, especially not in 100 days. Yeah, and it includes everything, like uh, changing some laws, like amending some laws, uh, introducing new laws, etc. In a way that looks like a laundry list, I'm not sure that this is actually a very serious plan as much as it is uh, basically everything that people have been demanding. But it, it basically promises to follow up on the, on the money that has been transferred out of Lebanon before and after October 17. I don't know what that means, like what's before we need a, we need a, a clear timeline they they didn't mention it because obviously they haven't agreed on it yet if this is going to happen at all and they will try to make it easier to prosecute public sector workers and one of the items is basically to call on donors like international donors to expose and retrieve stolen money and resort when needed to specialize firms to to trace the money i don't know what that means but it's just populist language that doesn't imply any specific policy But anyway, what we should know about it is that they're continuing with the same uh, old policies when it comes to the economy. Uh, it's clear there is a commitment to all the the plans and the visions and everything that Lebanon proposed at the SADR conference to get the international money. They will do an inter- inter- interministerial committee to follow up on reforms headed by Diab himself, uh, on the reforms that they were promised in SADR. And uh, they will review the, the the reform measure, what it was called the reform paper of Hariri, the thing he announced just before he basically was, his government was overthrown or he resigned. He was he was talking about this economic and fiscal reform measures uh, that as part of this reform paper that will save the, the country. And uh, Diab was never critical of it in, in any way. And this ministerial statement says that they will review it and they will implement, implement the articles in this reform paper that are approved by cabinet. So basically, they are not having a critical approach to this uh, reform paper. At the same time, they, they're saying like some of it might not be implemented depending on approval by cabinet. So, I mean, it, it sounds to me like that, that like they're, they're still committed to sort of the austerity light type program of the previous government. Seems so. They said they will do like an inventory of, of the assets and reserves, etc. Uh, and obviously pursue like fiscal cons- consolidation uh, by increasing, increasing revenues. For example, in the increasing revenues part, they talk about improving tax collection, but also like cracking down on smuggling and everything that is just self-evident. But they also talk about reforming the tax system to make it more progressive and, and like um, uh, taxing people based on a global income of all of your incomes together uh, and increase the, the income tax for high earners. These are things that are very good if they will actually be done. But uh, I mean, we're not sure if they mentioned them because they want a ministerial statement that people can't criticize or because there's actually any consensus on these things. And and also just to tack on to that, this is the, these specific measures that you're talking about are supposed to be done between 100 days and one year into office, right? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sorry, but like cracking down on tax evasion takes longer than a year to see like noticeable improvements in. Yeah, definitely. There's also obviously the reducing spending uh, side of things. And here we have many things. We have the restructuring of the public sector. They don't explain what that means exactly, but they mention like reducing waste of money of on, on consultancies and commission studies by the government. I don't know how much that is 
uh, compared to the budget, but they make it seem like a big deal. Uh, reviewing the spending on on um, you know the, the the spending that the the state does on the buildings that it rents for its ministries and the different administrations, because there's always a problem with that the state paying very large amounts of money to rent buildings. And then um, the, some measures to merge or eliminate or reform certain public sector entities that are controversial, like ministries that are useless or the funds that are um, room for that make room for a lot of corruption. You know, like the Council for Reconstruction and Development or the the Fund for the South, uh, Majlis Janoub, and these councils that a lot of people call for their elimination. This was included as well. Um, reforming the public pension system. They didn't say what that means, uh, if it's good for the people or bad, but this is also on the table and evaluating the sizes of public sector and security forces institutions. Also didn't didn't say exactly what they mean by that. Maybe considering making them smaller, which would be a, like an interesting development in terms of like the line that the Lebanese state has adopted for a long time, which is to have like a lot of people uh, employed in the security forces, uh, something that was established as a tradition after the civil war to include a lot of people from different various militias and is now just one of the main tools for sectarian clientelism, like jobs in the security forces is the easiest thing to give to your um, to people in, t- in return for political loyalty. And finally, there was obviously a lot of things on the finance and the fiscal side of things and the public debt. The, the ministerial statement talks about something that seems like debt restructuring, but doesn't say it. They say drafting a plan to reduce public debt service through, and I quote, through cooperation between the Ministry of Finance, the Central Bank, and the commercial banks to achieve a concrete reduction in the interest rate averages on the bank's deposit at BDL and the Treasury bonds in a way that reflects positively on the management of liquidity and the economy and reduces burden on the public finances. So basically, it seems like they're talking about a, a deal between the bank and banks and the state to restructure the debt, make it less of a burden on public uh, on the on the budget uh, because it has been the biggest uh, burden on the budget for the last six seven years at least um, and more than that so this is okay this uh, this is interesting but not very clear and then the other side is reducing public debt through privatization and public private partnerships which i didn't really understand like how can you reduce public debt by privatizing do do they mean like selling uh, state assets in return for money that would be used to pay back some of the debt or does it mean like giving assets to people who own that uh, in return for cancellation of, of, of some of that debt? It's not clear. But it's clear that the government is committed to Hariri's line of, of in, in economic policy, at least, of uh, selling state assets and privatizing as much as possible. Yeah, the privatization thing has been, you know, th- this has been talked about since the early 2000s. This is like an early Hariri program, you know, father Hariri program. It, it's one of those things where you, you would get a lot of money one off, right? Uh, I, I think there was a, a study done in like 2008 or something like that. If, if the state sold the the two mobile companies, Alpha and Touch, uh, which the state owns, if they sold those two companies, then they would get, uh, I think in 2008, it was something like $6 billion or something, um, which is roughly like one year's worth of debt service. Yeah, I mean, that or keep it for a while and just keep making consistent revenues from it uh, and find another solution to the debt. Anyway, we'll talk about that with Dan in a few minutes. Uh, this ministerial statement also talks about the banks and protecting deposit- depositors' money, whatever that means now, and whether it's real or not, we we can discuss it in a bit, and organize banks' relationships with clients to prevent any discretionary measures or treatment. So what they're saying basically is that they will make official in one way or another uh, the measures that banks have been taking and just making sure that all banks are doing the same thing. 
so that you know there's no not much difference and people have some kind of understanding or expectation from the banking uh, system uh, or the banks they deal with and restoring stability to the banking sector through and here there are some big words like recapitalization pumping cash and the and the use of banks reserves and dealing with unpaid loans and restructuring the banking sector this is just one item that is mentioned as part of you know the recapitalization plan and re- reducing interest rates on basically reducing interest rates in general in the economy to support produ- product productive sectors uh, and the commercial sectors and the last thing that uh, that should be mentioned here about the economy is the, the how the government seems to be seems to be like approaching the balance of payment issue and here the, you have all of the general slogans without anything specific like supporting exports in the manufacturing and agriculture and services sectors how it's not really clear but they talk about like exceptional tax custom fees to protect local products something that is different from what we had in the past if this actually happens uh, like protectionist measures on local production to to support them and there's uh, a couple of mentions and in, in the ministerial statement about the policy of supporting medicine manufacturing and the use of generic generic medicine in the public sector like cheap medicine basically uh, replacing the big brands with uh, cheaper brands but the main way in which like this balance of payment deficit is approach is like bringing money from international to international community under the pretext of like funding uh, the refugee burden as the statement calls it or um, you know uh, by bringing in foreign capital to invest in privatized projects and in public private partnerships or to requesting soft loans from international donors for urgent economic needs and this is kind of reflects it reflects what our new finance minister Ghazi Wazni said about wanting to get five billion dollars in soft loans to fund our uh, import of uh, wheat and gasoline and medicine etc and I'm not going to go in much more detail than that but there's also a section on social welfare improvement talking about helping poor families with scholarships and uh, signing some conventions and some vague words about healthcare that really don't imply any specific uh, policy but they're talking about restructuring the healthcare sector bit- like in in, com- in collaboration between the private and the public uh, healthcare service providers and uh, seeking uh, uh, foreign funding for housing de- housing projects and housing loans and working for the passing of the old age pension laws these are the most important things in terms of energy which a lot of people are always thinking about because it's big part of the budget deficit the electricity company it seems that the and also we just don't have 24 hour electricity yet definitely so the government seems to be committed to the previously approved plan that we talked about in a previous episode Specifically, it was an episode about the electricity plan and uh, because they said that if we're going to make a new plan and it's going to take a long time and we're going to be like accumulating all of this deficit during this time, it's better to commit to the previous plan. Which is an interesting argument for a post-uprising government to make. Like we can't afford the time to create new plans, so we're just going to stick with the old ones. But anyway, nothing new on this end. And uh, there's a part about like how they will incentivize growth and economic activity. But really, there's nothing in there that uh, looks visionary or different. It's just like making sure that BDL and the government, like the money spent through the government and the money that uh, the central bank uh, controls are used in a way to, you know, just at least make sure that some of the businesses we have and some of the needs we have like survive and are maintained for the upcoming period more than anything real about like a, a, a different paradigm. So all in all, a ministerial statement, exactly what we expected. A lot of big fancy words about like reforms and measures that are very popular with uh, some vague 
words when it comes to sensitive affairs or sensitive policy questions and the same paradigm uh, when it comes to reliance on, on foreign money and how to deal with the situation. And as far as reactions to this go, obviously, I guess it's been less than surprising. The opposition basically is opposed to this. So the parties that stayed out of the government, the Future Movement, the PSP, the LF, Kadab, they seem to be sort of nonplussed by the ministerial statement. Not not super angry about it necessarily. You know, the, the Future Movement, they, they said that they found it the policy statement to be inadequate. The the LF uh, was a little bit more strident with Asimir Jaja, actually calling it a total failure in an interview with the central uh, news agency. And, and, and so this, this is, you know, no, no huge surprise. They're the opposition, whatever. Going forward, though, we are scheduled to have a vote of confidence, basically, you know, looking at the new government and its policy statement. It's scheduled for Tuesday and Wednesday at Parliament. We will see what happens with that. We will see if MPs show up. We will see if protesters show up. We will see if they make it in, if they all do. Uh, I mean, really, anything could happen this coming week. Okay, uh, we also have a couple of interesting financial items, and so I'm really glad, Dan, you're here. This week, uh, BDL sent apparently a government, uh, a circular to the government about capital controls. Now, this is this, this piqued my interest because I mean we, we've heard about this circular uh, coming down and everything, but a circular that's just something that the central bank issues on its own. That's what Riyad Salame issues all by himself. He doesn't need any government signature on this. So why would he send a circular to the government before it gets published? What What's going on there? Okay, well, I got to go back a couple of months. So obviously, a capital controls law or something, a circular, should have been issued really uh, in October or November. B- before rich people pulled a bunch of their cash out Be- of the country. Yeah, before, I wouldn't say rich people, before connected people. I mean, you, gotcha. you, if you're connected, you can pull your money out, whether you're rich. Being rich doesn't help you in this case. This is one of those things where wasta isn't enough. You need super wasta. So that's the first thing. It's late. Uh, in my opinion, I think he, the BDL had the legal authority based on his mission statement to do it. Uh, they claim otherwise. In fact, at the beginning, if you remember, BDL was pushing back against it. He's saying that this is you know, anti-capitalism, anti-free market economy. Uh, they seem to have come around to our point of view, which is the fact that you need to have some type of a law so that OP people are treated equally instead of the capricious way that it was allowed where super wasta got you out and then yeah every bank has their own rules or whatever and so if you're just able to convince you know the right guy at your bank to sign on the dotted line you can get out however much you you can convince him of yeah so in my in my opinion the mission statement covered it it can be done it was it would have been legal uh, by the by a circular from the BDL. they claim not however regardless it was it would have been certainly more legal than uh, what it has happening now which is the decentralized decision making at the branch manager level right and even if it's not legal let the courts overturn it at least you did your duty so we are where we are uh, uh, this uh, law was submitted to parliament for voting and at one point i was told by people in the know that it was supposed to be passed in fact by now <laughs> and then it got held up and i i have a theory on why it was held up uh, i mean let's call it an educa- educated guess it's because of the signing authority for exceptions so you've got the rules you know you can get a, you can get a hundred dollars a week uh 50 grand a year whatever the rules are the exceptions are you know tuition for your kid uh, medical operation what documents needed etc but there's somebody who's going to have godlike power to sign exceptions that human being would be the most powerful guy in the history of lebanon <laughs> okay so that in my opinion was the snag so mm. uh the problem there is that as usual whenever you have something with exception signing authority uh you get a lot of venue for new ways of corruption right right absolutely 
So who who's going to give anybody that kind of authority? Right. And then so the next solution would be, okay, well, let's make a committee <laughs> to decide. And then when you have a committee, you're going to have to represent 18 sects, you know, 25 parties. And then you know, how do you do it? You vote. Is a majority? Does someone have veto rules? Uh, is a small sect equal to a big sect? And so, therefore, they see, it seems they've opted to go with the middle ground, which is tighten the rules a little bit, but no law, which means super wasta continues to give people an exception. That means the less powerful guy, and again, it's not necessarily a rich guy, it's the person connected. Super wasta to me isn't the old wasta. Old wasta was, okay, uh, so I'm connected with the Amin Am, I can get my passport uh, renewed faster, or it holds, you know, there's a snag, they, they can speed it up. You know, the wasta of I got the guy's number and I send them WhatsApp jokes and every now and then I have dinner with them. Super wasta, in my, in my opinion, is like in, ingrained interests. It means you and I have very close business interests i know the skeletons in your closet you know the skeletons in my closet and that's the super wasta that allows a guy sometimes with a million dollars to say extract a hundred thousand dollars in cash when people are waiting in line outside to get a hundred dollars a week yeah 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 also this past week it emerged that societe generale the uh french gigantic enormous bank which owns part of sgbl uh they included an impairment equal to the what their equity stake in the local branch is like 158 million euros they they put to the side apparently in in uh their one of their financial statements this past week that sounds like a, a really really big deal but sgbl came out uh, a day or two later and said oh no no this is all just normal where is the truth in this is is this just like a normal thing that banks do and we shouldn't think twice about it or does this actually show us something that we should be concerned about yeah look this is it, both are true it depends on on which environment you're you're operating in so in the in the safe environment of the european union that's a big deal in the environment we, we we've got now where you know there's been a, a downgrade on the banks to selective default etc it's actually normal operating procedure in the sense that uh, because of I, because of the IFSR nine uh, accounting rules and so forth, they had to downgrade because of the downgrade of the sovereign and so forth. They had to downgrade any bank has to be downgraded uh, in this way. So, in other words, SGBL in and of itself is not any worse than any other bank in Lebanon. So the problem is that we, you know, obviously banks are going through a hard time, but we need to make sure that we don't, you know, exaggerate the problem. Uh, there's no solve insolvency problem. I'll give you an example. Uh, SGBL specifically owns, uh, I think, 10% of Solidaire. Uh, Solidaire stock has rallied because of the Lollars escaping into real estate. So, you know, there's no question that, for example, they have a significant gain on that on that stock. I don't know what their cost basis is. So let's just say they're not insolvent. They, they don't have any more of a problem than the systemic banking problem in the country. Yeah, yeah. Now, the last time you were here, we spoke extensively about the Lebanese lira and what would be happening you know, or, or like potential scenarios, you know, how things uh, in, in facing back then, what was the coming, the looming financial crisis, how things could play out. Since that time, we, we actually do have multiple exchange rates now. Uh, we've got 1507.5, the official exchange rate that nobody can really get at, at the banks. We've got 2000 supposedly at the exchange houses, but not really. And then the real market rate, which is as of like Friday and Saturday was hovering around uh, 2300 lira to the dollar. Is there, uh, do, you, do you see these exchange rates continuing to sort of multiply and diverge? 
or uh, is there some way for us to bring things back and sort of like put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Okay, so the, the, there's only one rate, in my opinion, which is the real rate. So the real rate is the rate that you get at the exchange house. Okay, the 2300. 2300 or 2270, uh, I think it was last time I saw it. So that is the real rate. Anything below that is not the real rate. So when the memo came out by the union of exchange houses, which said, I'm buying at 2000, I mean, really, that's not a peg. What they did is they're saying, I'll pay you 2000, I'll sell it to you for whatever I want. That's really, unless you're naive, that's not really a trade you should do. Yeah, it was, it was criticized as a dollar grab yeah, by the yeah, syndicate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, by, so by, I, I don't know why they exchanges. did it. I don't know what the intentions were. But the bottom line is that I think from my, what I've seen, I've seen the bid offers that are outside that range, which means that, that rule fizzled out pretty much 24 hours later and anyone who is accepting the 2000 rate is really being being shafted by by whoever his exchange house is so so that's not the rate so now there's really two rates the real rate and then the official rate now the official rate 1507 and a half is beneficial for people paying for example in lira dollar loans clearly there's a loss being taken by somebody in that transaction Okay, And one of the benefits I had from having lunch with a gentleman yesterday was I noticed on the balance sheet of the central bank an increase between November and December of a billion dollars from $111 billion in deposits to $112 billion in deposits. So I was wondering, like, who the hell is still, is still doing these transactions? And then I realized what was going on. So the loss that's being taken here is the bank, when, when the bank gives you the rate of 1507.5 uh, for the payment of the loan, he, he's got to go and, and purchase dollars from the central bank, give him the lira, right, at 1507.5, otherwise he loses money. And and here is what's happening is a new transaction or a new deal or, or agreement between the central bank and the banks of keeping these, giving them a dollar at that rate, but keeping them for a, I think the a contract is five years at that rate. So that increase in, in a billion or much of it, let's say, is, the, is all the little transactions that everybody does at the official rate of 1507.5. So to answer your question, the real rate now is whatever it is, 2300. In fact, it's probably a little low because remember, this capital control is not just on dollars. You can't withdraw as much as you want in lira today, right? Which means there's a control on the real demand. So that rate is even you know, likely to go up in the next few months if they release more lira into the market, which I believe they will. So now, why is the rate still officially at 1507.5? Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons. One theory by people smarter than me is that it's to protect the banks from some, some of the liabilities they have. Uh, my theory is a little bit more uh, practical or simple. Which Can you is, explain the first theory first? Like, how does it work? It's, it's related to the balance sheets of the bank in terms of, you know, if you release it, they're, they're going to have to take some hits on their balance sheet. So that's why they're not doing it. Uh, that's the, let's say, the scientific answer. My answer is more like political. I mean, who wants to be the guy to go and make the speech and say the lira is no longer 1507.5? I mean, the central bank government doesn't want to make that speech. The government doesn't want to make that speech to the army or the Dadak or whatever. So they, they keep going on with the charade of it's 1507.5. And to be honest with you, a chunk of the Lebanese people still believe it's 1507.5. So in some ways, it's working. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that somebody in the security agencies or somebody who works for the state or somebody who just has like a large you know, retirement account in, in Lira being very happy about hearing a politician come out and, and say, you know, the truth, oh no, this we're, we're going to make it 2300 or whatever. Yeah, in practice, though, except if you're paying a loan in dollars, like when you actually can abuse, let's say, that the 
for lack of a better term, abuse the the exchange, the official exchange rate and on a practical basis. I mean, the, the lira now is twenty three hundred, right? Like, let's say you want to go, you know, you want to go. I mean, if you're if you've got a lira card and you get paid in dollars, you're actually benefiting from a forty percent or whatever discount. But on a practical basis, if you go to the supermarket, the supermarket. This is a, a friend of mine who's an industrial. He told me there's, you know, you you invented the lolar and then there's the real dollar and then there's a third one. He called it the supermarket dollar. I'm like, what's that? And he says, well, you go to the supermarket and the rate is fifteen hundred, but the price in dollars has been increased by 40%. Yeah. So that it's 1500 but in, so that's the supermarket dollar, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, it's creating a lot of havoc in the system because, you know, we've been doing this for 22 years and all of a sudden we're, we're no longer used to this thing about is, is it 1500 is it 2200 is it 2000 etc. So you expect the lira to be... Uh, depreciating in value in in the in the near future. I mean, it depends on it. It all depends really on their ability to curtail or keep capital controls on lira. So it's pretty clear today that the supply of dollars, when you go to the bank to transfer overseas or to take out money, they're curtailing that. They're telling you you got to wait three hours. I'll give you a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever. So hmm. that part is creating a lot of tension in 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 the community, right? Waiting in line, not getting what you need, uh, not being able to pay your bills, etc. So the only pressure valve that they have access to to release is really the lira so if they give you more lira then you may be more satisfied but at the same time if they give you more lira what are you going to do with it you're going to go run to the exchange house so the more lira they give you the more the rate is going to depreciate mm -hmm. so here it's really a tug of war between trying to control the lira supply and between people getting more and more violent or animated at the banks so that's really in my opinion what the what's stopping it so you know the more incidents happen at banks they're going to release more lira in fact the latest circular if you see it's really no change on the dollar side. It's all cosmetic. But what they did say in there is you can, you're allowed to take out 25 million a month in lira. That's an increase in supply. So if I were a betting man, I would bet I would bet on the on the rate uh, diverging further when the when the circular kicks in. And, it, and we've seen it already. That's why it went up by 100 lira in the last couple of days. So politicians are committed to the 1500 peg, like at least in what they say. Is there really any credible? realistic way that we get back there in the next year or two no the the, the there's absolutely it's meta metaphysically impossible for the for the rate to go back to 1507 and a half it's just not going to happen the issue really for pol and politicians i mean knowledgeable politicians the ones that are technically uh, competent they know this as well and some of them have said it even in public the problem is it's so unpopular as a thing i mean you, you had a couple of senior people that said it in public I mean, the governor said it, the minister of finance said it, and then you, you get all kinds of people yelling. The problem with us and as a country is we don't like people telling us the truth. We, we kind of, on the one hand, we, when they lie to us, we blame them. And then when they tell us the truth, we blame them. So we sort of have to pick, we have just have to pick a path and move with it. In my opinion, it is, it is a positive thing for people in authority to tell the people the truth. So when the governor or the minister said, hey, we've got a very, you know, we've got a very dangerous three months ahead, people shouldn't like jump on them. They should embrace the truth. And the other, the other issue for their sake as well, if they're going to ask us as Lebanese to, to sort of uh, sacrifice, they need to tell us the truth. If they tell us everything is okay and then they ask they increase taxes or whatever, then how you know how are we going to take that? Also, this issue with the lira and the rate, it plays into deposits, right? And what some people have described as basically an effective haircut that's already going on on deposits, sort of like slow motion. So if you've got you know money deposited at the bank in dollars or in lira, you want to take that out as quickly as you can, but then you're also going to transfer it probably into dollars at the Saraf and then keep that stashed, you know, under your mattress at home or whatever, right? And so that means 
I'll just use my own personal experience. So when I was trying to withdraw from my Lira account or whatever, I would take out the maximum amount that I could, and then I would go to the Sarraf, and I would get less than what I think in my head, you know, based on being here for a decade, I should get this amount. No, I was getting, you know, 25% less or more. And, and so that was effectively a haircut on my deposit, right? And, and this is going on in slow motion because people are doing this sort of like slow motion run on the banks, right? Yeah, but the advantage of that from, the, from a policy perspective, it's a voluntary haircut. I mean, nobody forced you to take the money out and nobody forced you to convert the money immediately and take, and take the, the way you phrase it, a haircut. So yeah, you're right. right. It is a haircut, but it's a voluntary haircut. You're choosing to do it. The guy who's not doing it is choosing not to do it. So in some sense, from a political perspective or from a policy perspective, it's an easier thing to achieve. It does achieve the same thing. Okay. Right, right. Because the, lo the logic for the individual is to go ahead and do this, right? You know, you, you, you don't want to keep all your money in the bank. You want to take out as much as possible. Y yeah, yeah. It's rational, too. And now the only thing I dispute is the fact that it's all under the mattresses. I mean, you know, the guy with millions of dollars stashed away, sure, that person can afford to keep it under the mattress. Now, the average Lebanese guy making living paycheck to paycheck or not having paid for th three months or getting half a salary, that person is converting to, to, you know, getting his dollars out, converting to lira and then paying bills and getting a 40% discount. is That's more likely usage than uh, than keeping it under the mattress. On the other hand, a person, you know, a multimillionaire would stash bigger amounts of cash or would stash as much as possible. So it sort of depends. It's not, it's not as prevalent as people think that they're stashing at home. But there is a haircut that is actually happening, which is basically that you can't withdraw your dollars from the bank uh, and you can only withdraw them, withdraw them in lira. So you're getting that 30% loss uh, that you were talking about earlier because if you withdraw them in lira at the 1500 rate, you're losing like a big chunk of your money. So this is a haircut because the banks seem to be reducing the amounts, the allowances they're like they're giving uh, in dollars. So you could maybe withdraw $600 last month or $800 this month, it would be maybe 600 or 400. And we're going in this direction where basically we're, we're able to withdraw less and less dollars from the bank, which means that basically we'll never get them because the, the, the whole uh, banking system is going in the, uh, off the cliff. So I'm losing my dollar. If I have dollars in the banks, I don't, unfortunately. But if I did have dollars in the bank, I would be losing now like my money, a, a big chunk of my money because of this policy of not giving out dollars, right? It's, it's basically a haircut affecting everyone, a regressive haircut because it has absolutely nothing to do with how much money you have. No one expects to actually get their dollars back from the, from the bank eventually. I mean, sort of. The capital controls in and of itself is not a haircut. Capital controls is simply postponing informing you of the haircut. So let's say you, you know, I owe you a hundred bucks, okay? And somehow I, you know, and I used to pay you $10 a month over a year. And if I stop paying you $10 a month, I now pay you a dollar a month uh, because I only have 50 bucks left. So I'm trying to, what I'm doing there is I'm just postponing telling you the truth, right? Yeah. So the, the capital controls part is not a haircut. The capital, I mean, a little bit it is a haircut in the sense that if they forcefully reduce your interest rate to 5%, when it was, say, 10%. So from a time value of money perspective, like let's say you decided to put your money in Lebanon because they paid 10%. And if they pay less than 10%, you'd put it in uh, Jordan or you'd put it in Dubai. Mm. But they for, they've locked up your money. So from a time value perspective, if you do the present value, that is a haircut. So from a technical perspective, it is. On a practical level, people in Lebanon don't really understand time value of money. So the capital controls in itself is not. The voluntary, the thing about taking out lira from your dollar account, 
uh, or taking out dollars and converting at the... But you have no choice. It's not really voluntary because you can't get your dollars. You're in like... some cases, I mean, people... I mean, remember, people are withdrawing more money than they, they need to. It is a choice, right? Mm. But And they're not, they're not doing it necessarily just because they're worried about their money. They're also doing it because there's benefits to doing that, which is the the arbitrage between the, the official rate and the real and rate. The rate. I mean, basically, if you're able to take out dollars from the bank and you go to a restaurant where he, they charge you the bill in at 1500 you're getting a 40% discount by paying the guy in converted liras, right? Mm. So that's the impetus here. So as long as there's arbitrage, there's an incentive for people to withdraw dollars. But as you said, the trend certainly has been a reduction. You've gone from 1,000 a week to 500 a week to 300 a week, 100 a week. So pretty clearly we are, as time tends to infinity, <laughs> we're converging to zero withdrawals in dollars, which means that you're going to get more withdrawals in lira. Otherwise, they're going to have some animated incidents at the bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So now all of this sort of boils down to the fundamental problem, whether you're talking about capital controls or potential haircuts on deposits, you're talking about just like there's there's a slack of dollars in the country, right? Like that fundamentally, the, this is the problem. We don't have the dollars coming in that we used to. Um, and so the dollars that we do have are sort of precious. And, you know, who we decide to allow withdraw $100 or $1,000, like that's an important decision now because there's so, you know, there's such a scarcity of dollars. But that also plays into another side of things, which is the government's debt and the repayment of the government's debt. The, the government owes something like uh, $30 billion uh, in principal outstanding on euro bonds. And we've got a series of payments in dollars the Lebanese state has to make over the next uh, few months. I'm going to run through this really, really quickly uh, just to give you a taste of the schedule we are in for. Starting on March 9th, $1.2 billion is due. The state has to pay $1.2 billion to investors. On March 23rd, about $100 million more is owed in interest. On April 12th, another $86 million is due. On April 14th, $700 million, another principal repayment is due. There are some smaller payments as well in, in, in this. Uh, May is full of a whole bunch of payments. Uh, I won't go through all of them, but like it's just uh, May 4th, $67 million. May 12th, $47 million. May 17th, $124 million. May 20th, $149 million, and so on. So that May- I think I get the message here. May actually, yeah. <laughs> in in May, there's no principal repayment, but there's, some, there's more than $500 million due just in interest payments on euro bonds. And then in June, another $600 million in principal is due. So between March and June of this year, over the next few months, the Lebanese state has to pay back about $3.3 billion to investors, which is kind of a big deal. That's a whole lot of money for a small country like Lebanon. And at the same time, now, like people will say, oh, well, the central bank has a bunch of reserves and everything, like $30 billion or whatever, but those reserves well, are dwind- well, let, dwindling as well. I mean, let, let's, let's tighten down the numbers a little bit, okay? So basically... The debt, well, let's talk about what the debt is. So the debt, the Lebanese debt that everybody talks about is $87 billion, right? Out of that, what just what you mentioned, 31.3, I think, billion is euro bonds. Those are the dollar debt. The rest is lira. Yeah. Okay, 87 billion. That's the uh, amount of debt everybody knows, everybody talks about. Then there's the other debt, which is the deposits at the central bank. That's debt too. That's government right. debt. So Absolutely. that's 112. Not counted in this. Yeah. Right. So there's $112 billion. You could see it dwarfs the other one. Okay. Right. And out of that $112 billion, there's $70 billion in dollars versus $31 billion. So it's more than double that. If you add the two, it's $200 billion. If you subtract the overlap, there's double counting, like the $5.7 billion in euro bonds at the central bank. The debt, let's call the debt $175, $180 billion, whatever, plus or minus $10 billion. So the, the amount of euro bonds, 31. And remember, what matters is not the total number. What matters is what's external. 
Okay. Right. So the external debt out of, in the euro bonds is somewhere between the estimates range from five to twelve billion, and that's the face value, not the market value, by the way. So at worst, you're talking about four, five, six percent of our debt is external. In other words, let's let's look at Lebanon as a family. You you owe your wife money. Your wife owes your daughter. Your daughter owes your son. Your son owes your grandson. Your grandson owes you money. That you know that's 170 billion dollars or 160 billion dollars. All internal to Lebanon. All internal. So you you owe the, you owe your, each other 170 dollars, and then you owe somebody on the outside. The your let's call it your bank 10 dollars. Okay, and then the bank on the outside, if you don't pay him the ten dollars, you know what? He'll kick you out of the house. So really, the whole debt problem in Lebanon is all internal. It's a circular thing where A owes B, owes C, owes D, owes E, owes F, and the whole problem with not being able to withdraw money from the banks, waiting in line, uh, unemployment increasing, companies shutting down—it's all because Lebanese people owing each other money don't want to recognize the losses. That's all. So what they've done now is they've they've come up with this populist argument of oh my god I can't pay the euro bonds the euro bonds owed to the outside according to Akbar seven hundred eighty three million dollars for foreigners out of all the stuff you mentioned a, a restructuring let's say we're geniuses here and we go out there and go and we're such geniuses that even though we forgot to include the enhanced CAC to allow us to to argue our point better with the with the creditors we're gonna resolve this shit in like uh, thirty days and let me talk about the lawyers. Our lawyers, the geniuses on the prospectus, forgot the enhanced CAC, which allows us a better negotiating positions with the, with the creditors, right? Right. Uh, and now these guys think they can come out, come up against you know seventeen thousand lawyers that do this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they think they're gonna win. Let me tell you one more thing. Even if you do win, what are you gonna save on the seven hundred eighty-three million? Like two hundred, three hundred million dollars? So you want to default and ruin Lebanon's credit reputation, which we've maintained for since nineteen forty-three, all to save three hundred million dollars. With the slogan, oh, we buy food, not pay foreigners, right? When the real debt, I mean, by the way, these foreigners lent us at 7%, 6%, 5%, and then the stuff, this crap with the financial engineering, we paid 15, 20, 30%. So you owe me 100 bucks at 17%, let's say, and you owe Nizar five bucks at 7%. Tell me where, the, where your problem is. Yeah, it's not with okay. 5%. Now, let's, yeah. this is, so the carrot is that if we pay this stuff in two or three years, when we, when we want to rebuild this country, we go back to these same foreigners and we say, look, guys, we've had problems. You know, Look at us. We still paid our debt because like uh, Game of Thrones, Lannisters always pay their debt. Lebanon's always pay their debt. And we go back and we borrow money. Let's do a private-public partnership this time. We build a, a monorail fast uh, train from uh, Akkar all the way to Marun Ras. Like good stuff instead of what the crap we spend it on, like the the electricity deficit and all that. So that's the carrot why I don't think we should default. Now let's talk about the stick, the gold. Now, if they sue us because we defaulted, they're going to sue us in New York, right? Now, where's our gold? Yeah, U.S. Where in the U.S.? In New York. Is in New York, in... convenient for the judge. I've heard, it, say, I've go heard down it was at Fort Knox as well. I, I, it's, I because, because Fort Knox is, a, U.S. gold is Fort Knox, and it, it sounds better in, a, in, a, in an article. But oh, really, okay. it's All in right. New York. Very. It's at the New York Fed. Very, very convenient. Foreign, yeah, foreign gold is there. So it's very convenient for the judge. Hey, go, hey, hey uh, there, Lancaster, go down and get my, uh, that, that gold they're talking about. You know, our planes. You know, Middle East airplanes. You're 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 trying to board in Paris, and suddenly you go and you see this like yellow tape police line. Do not cross. Uh, our deposits, the reserves. Where are those? Anybody know the real ones? Not the lolars, the bullshit on the on the computer entries on the statements. You know where they are? In New York, <laughs> right yeah. next to that same judge. I had a case when I worked at a previous bank. For those of us, I mean, some people say we have sovereign immunity, right? And nobody will categorically say there's no problem. They'll say I'm confident, I'm sure. It's unlikely. 
and they'll give some cases and I'll give some counter cases, right? Yeah. But nobody will say categorically that it's not a threat. And I, I'll give you a personal experience that happened to me. A few years back, a judge in New York on some bullshit uh, uh, lawsuit, he froze the account of a Jordanian guy in Jordan at the bank where I work. It's like, judge, you know, they realize this is Jordan. He's like, yeah, just freeze it. And then it's like, okay, okay, judge, we're going to go tell the client. And then he's like, no, you have a gag order. You can't tell him. So the client shows up and he asks for his money. And we're like, sorry, we can't give it to you. I'm like, why? What do you mean? He's like, sorry, we have a gag order. That's even worse than the capital controls we have now. Jeez, yeah. And then, and then the central bank comes in and says, why are you giving this guy his money? I'm like, sorry, we can't tell you. So it's like, you know, you're like, you're like fucking with shit that you really do not understand, okay? So, you know, your upside is two, three hundred million dollars, seven hundred eighty-three million if you pay nothing, okay? And nobody's gonna accept a restructuring that pays nothing. And your, you, you know, your downside is that they, these guys unleashed the, the gates of hell on us, you know, including the reserves. Technically, they could put their hands on the on the on the central bank reserves even. Okay, so the worst case scenario. So in simple terms, the argument you're making is uh, we deal with the internal debt, uh, we restructure that, but the external debt, we pay it, we maintain our credit, uh, like our reputation. This is the line you're drawing between internal and external debt. Now the question is... Well, let me, let me, let me give it to you in simple terms. If I told you that Lebanon's debt today is $10 billion, that's it. Would we have a problem? Nope. Nope. What's our debt to GDP ratio if we had $10 billion in debt? One sixth. Nothing. Even with a lira devaluation, let's say that let's say the economy shrinks to forty billion, it's twenty-five percent debt to GDP ratio. So that's a real problem. So so really, if I can get rid of the internal debt problem, I have no debt. Okay. Right? How to do that? How do you deal with the internal debt? Like like dissect it for us. You have the the, the internal debt in dollars and the like in terms of deposit at the central bank and euro bonds held by okay. Lebanese owners or ba- Lebanese very banks. Simple, very simple. You got the lira debt. Okay, that's I can print it as much as I want. Game over, done. Okay, that's most of the debt, by the way. It, the the debt on the government side. It's not most of the debt on the deposit side. But I can print as much as I want. I can pay everybody back to the last penny with interest, no problem. That leaves a dollar debt, seventy billion. Okay, guess what? You haircut them. Who does it affect? There's six thousand people, twenty-four thousand accounts that own. When I first started saying this, it was ninety billion. Now it's eighty-three billion. So eighty-three billion dollars. You 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 haircut fifty percent. Boom, game over. You don't longer have to wait in line in the bank. <laughs> That's it. Lira debt done. The, the deposits, you hit 6,000 people. That's holding up the whole country. Now, you tell me, oh, they earned their money fair and square, blah, blah, blah. Maybe some of them earned their money fair and square. Maybe some of them invented a cure for cancer and patented it and made a billion dollars, which they decided to put in the bank. I doubt it because usually people that you know do startups and venture capital, they don't put their money in the bank. They invest them in another startup, right? But let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. So some of them made their money legitimately. If these guys earned 15% interest, 12% interest, something like that, then they deserve to be haircut because oh, most of the gains is fake interest, which was funded by the principal of the rest of the Lebanese population. Let me give you some numbers. Somebody who has $10 million at 12% interest for 10 years, now today has 31 million. A haircut of 50% means he has 15 and a half million, which means he earned 4.2%, something like that over the last 10 years, that's which is interest. a reasonable rate of return. Yeah. So we haven't even, even hit this principle, okay? Mm. So in my mind, that's the solution done. Now, one more thing, you can try to save these guys in another way. You could say, okay, instead of haircutting 50%, I'll haircut them 40%, which means you gotta spread the 10% over the less than these people, which means that you're gonna have a, a riot on your hands when you hit all the way down to 100 or below. 86% percent of people have under $100,000. There's really zero reason to touch those guys under any circumstance. Even if an incompetent fool did the haircut, they shouldn't hit those under 100. But in my plan, you can you can even avoid hitting anybody under a million dollars, but you got to do it visibly and decisively and painfully and immediately and quickly. You see what that I'm saying? That sounds 
like a fairy tale. <laughs> Immediately, decisively, painfully. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing already the policy stagnation. You know, they, they can't even fucking implement capital controls, right? Who's going to actually implement what you're, what you're talking it, about? To me, it's, it's all about, I, I, I got you. I got what you're saying. But it's all about self-interest. Sherlock Holmes said, when you remove, when you eliminate all possibilities, whatever's left is the truth, okay? So we've got a whole, I, I called the whole 70 billion. You don't have to fill the whole hole. Let's call it 50, let's call it 50 billion, the haircut, right? Or 40 billion. The point is that you really, the choices are very simple. You either haircut the top, what I said, the 6,000 only, or you spread it over the rest of the Lebanese people. So choice one, you, 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 you hurt the guy. Now you could save the guy 20% on the haircut by spreading it all the way down. So this guy, you can either hurt 6,000 or 4.5 million, all to save the, guy, the, the guys at the top 20%. I think it's in their best interest Okay, so that they don't start, get hassled at, at restaurants, so that they don't get attacked in their villas, so that they don't get mugged, okay, uh, to, to go with the plan. Because today, even those guys, they can't pay their bodyguards, man. Unless you have Super Wasta, a guy with a billion dollars that's a computer entry can't withdraw more than 500 bucks. I mean, this guy is just a, a guy with a computer entry. He's got no power anyway. So the fact of the matter is, it is in his best interest as well to go with this plan, call it an insurance policy. There's a third plan they're looking at. Okay. The third plan is to sell assets of the Lebanese government, like MTC touch, and make whole the, the, the 6,000 I'm talking about. Now, if the Lebanese people are going to accept this type of abuse of selling Lebanese assets, then maybe these guys get some of the money. There's actually, there's no plan in the world today, okay, that will return the deposits. There is nothing that will get it done. There's only about how badly do you get hurt and who do you spread the losses to. That's the only choices so these guys have. who loses and how much you lose is the question. It's not a matter of whether the, or not Absolutely. the deposits are fine. Yeah, and for the political parties, they, 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 they know. I've had conversations with them. Like, these guys can't even donate for them. They got computer entries, man. They're, they're not even, I mean, you're only as powerful as the money you can extract and spend on, on stuff, okay? They, he can't even pay you a bribe. <laughs> So it's like, what, what are we worried about? Do it. So to summarize this for people who are not familiar with a lot of maybe the jargon that has, has been mentioned, you're suggesting that if we cancel the internal debt in, in, in dollars through a haircut, so can you just like a final thing, like kind of link the haircut to uh, the relief of the debt? Because it might be not, it might not be self-evident to a lot of people. Like how... When you do a haircut, as you're saying, like takes 50% off the accounts that are more than one million dollars. How does that help you get rid of the of the dollar debt? Okay, because that is that the debt we said the debt is the 87 billion plus the 112 billion, right? So you know, removing doing the haircut reduces that debt. Lira debt is never a problem anyway. So you just took you took away the dollar internal debt through a haircut. On the euro bond debt, the stuff that's owed locally, we can handle it as I say, amicably. So that really leaves, the only problem we have is the 10 billion, 12 billion now because of these guys selling to the foreigners. 12 billion face value. You go on the market, you'll buy it maybe for half price, I don't know. But the point of the whole thing is it's an insignificant amount of debt. As a country, we are not indebted. We're indebted to ourselves and therefore the problem is internal. We don't need IMF, we don't need external stuff. We may need them at the end when we start rebuilding the economy because there's going to be some collateral damage when we go through this stuff and because of the uncertainty. But in reality, it's a very, very simple problem. I'm going to tell you one more secret though. The haircut is the same as what the slogan Haircut equals the recovery of stolen funds. It's the same thing because the, the so-called stolen funds, they're not in Switzerland or Luxembourg or Panama. They're right here. And I can give you the argument for that if you want. Yeah. Okay. So we've had leaks of thousands of accounts in, in Switzerland, in Panama, etc. Okay. Out of all those accounts, I mean, 
President Putin showed up on it. Cameron in, in Britain showed up on it. We've had like a handful of Lebanese guys show up on it that nobody's heard of, and really they were doing you know they were doing it for reasons not 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 unrelated to Lebanon. So. Statistically, we have a sample that says we don't have Lebanese representation. There's another reason. Because we've had thousands of leaks, how many leaks have we had from the banking sector in Lebanon of accounts, thousands of accounts? Have we ever had one account that was that leaked in Lebanon? Not one account in 70 years yeah. of the banking sector in Lebanon. Not one mistake. So we fucked up the electricity. We fucked up the, uh, the, the water. We fucked up the drinking water. Transport, you name it, we fucked everything. it up. But one thing we've never made one mistake in is bank secrecy exception. Not one. So you've got a politician. He's got the choice of putting it in, in a country where there's been thousands of leaks or Lebanon. What's he going to do? Third reason, KYC AML these days. Very difficult for these guys to open accounts overseas. Okay, They can't even front it. It's very difficult. And I'm going to give you the final reason, the obvious one. You could, you could derive this from your uncle. Just because a guy knows how to bribe and get shit done in the Lebanese system doesn't mean this guy is a genius at portfolio management and the efficient frontier and, and a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds. If a Swiss banker is going to come in to a Lebanese uh, uh, senior politician who's corrupt and ask him to open an account, the first question this guy's going to ask him, how much interest are you going to pay? Yeah. And the guy's going to be like, well, monsieur, on uh, dollars we pay 1%. And on euro, we'll pay zero. <laughs> and on francs, we pay minus one. And the guys are going to be, but fucking bank here is paying me 17%. Why the fuck should I go with you? Right? Yeah. So the bottom line is 90% of the sto so-called stolen funds are right here, either in banks or real estate. <laughs> Seek and you shall find. So the haircut equals recovery of stolen funds. So basically a haircut, there, there's this there's a moral position that you can take saying that we need a haircut. It should be on the people with the largest bank accounts. It should, you know, obviously be graduated like that. But a haircut is a good thing because it recovers these public funds. That's the argument. It's it's look, not everybody that has accounts. I mean, I, we're, the model is I'm generalizing. There are some institutions, for example, I know banks. There's Jordanian banks that have money here. There's banks from another. There's there's, there's one country that has a systemic <laughs> exposure to our, to our banking system. Okay, so there's some collateral damage going on here. There are people that made their money legitimately. There's people with $10 million on their account making 5 or 6%. We should try to look at the interest paid over the last 10 or 20 years, okay? And anything ex excess to a reasonable rate, let's call that rate the euro bond. So for example, anybody making more than 7%, we should try to do a haircut on the additional amount. And we, we have can do all this the as numbers. a one-time tax. Do, do, huh? do we have all the numbers for that? For that? Oh, it's easy. We have all the numbers. They're at the banks. They're, it's very... Because it's that's big. always something that is said as a counter-argument like... Who will have the data for it? It it it's there, isn't it? Like the the data is very very easy. You can like you you know you and I sitting there with a whole bunch of forensic accountants over literally over two weeks, we can like hash it out. Boom, done. A weekend even if we work really hard. You seem to be like a like a, someone who's kind of taking controversial position by making this pitch. So just quickly open up like the discussion for us in the future because we're going to have further episodes discussing these matters what is the problem with what you're saying like what is the disadvantage of your pitch what is what are some people arguing against it uh, so that we can you know build on this conversation later on I mean, there's no argument against it it's inevitable it's like the only thing we're talking about we, we've got a limited amount of money okay that we have to distribute to the people the money's gone 
Okay, one solution is you go get the money from outside. So the seventy billion dollars I told you about, you go you go make a pitch to the Congress, Congress or the EU to send us seventy billion dollars, and the pitch will go huh. like this. So listen, we got a, we got six thousand people worth eighty three billion, been earning fifteen percent, ten percent, whatever, and you know what? We got to make them whole because we spent the money on other bullshit. So please, can you send us seventy billion dollars? So Israel, the largest recipient of foreign aid, receives thirty billion over ten years. Can you just send us seventy billion in one day? or one year to make whole these millionaires, please? I don't know, maybe the Chinese will do it, I don't know, the Russians. Okay, so that's solution one. You can't do it, fine. The other solution is you bring down the fake dollars to equal the real dollars. The, f the fake dollars are all that accumulation of interest, plus it got spent on, the, on, on maintaining the peg. The maintaining the peg wasn't a free thing, okay? It, it spent a lot of the dollars for the deposit. We were basically, <laughs> we were basically spending the deposits to fund the lifestyle of, of, of maintaining the high standard of living with lira salaries. So the money's gone, that's it. Now, the only choice is how do you distribute these losses? It's not about if, it's, it's how. So there are people pitching to, for example, conversion to lira across the board at 1507. Guess what? The guy with $1,000 gets hit the same proportion as the guy with $100 million. So the issue is, are the Lebanese people aware enough about this to prevent that from happening in that fashion, or are they aware of it to, to put the pressure on so that it, it is disproportionately uh, uh, hit by, and this is, by the way, this is not a communist position or Marxist position, to be clear. This is a very capitalist. If you were earning 17% on a deposit in dollars, that's not capitalism, that's theft. Yeah, and you, you have such high risk that you knew about, um, I mean, if you're investing millions of dollars, just not investing, just putting them in the bank to get uh, high interest, you know that the risk is high. So it's your responsibility that at some point the, 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 the whole system crash because everyone's doing the same as you and you got to bear that responsibility and, you know, uh, accept the losses do, do you, that you have. I mean, there's counter arguments. I mean, I've heard counter arguments by some of these people like, hey, I, I gave it to the bank. I expected the bank to give me my deposit. The fact that the bank misspent the money, blah, blah, blah. But in my mind, like, you know, if you're getting 17, these guys, you know, if you're getting 17 percent interest on your million or 10 million or whatever, right? You should probably take the time to ask the question, hey, where are you putting my money? And I'm like, okay, I got you with the central bank. Well, what's the central bank doing with it? Like, I don't know. He's doing this financial engineering stuff. Oh, okay, financial engineering, great. I mean, you can go further. What does that financial engineering mean? Well, he just gave us a lot of dollars, gave us lira for profits, and then he took the dollars into reserves, and then he spent them to back the peg. Okay, so I'm helping the Lebanese people. Yep, you're helping. Mm. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? So whichever way you cut it, if you've got 10 million and you're earning 17%, you're smart enough to know that 17% is a bullshit interest rate in a 0% world. So if you get hit in the end, I think it's fine. Now, the issue is the guy that was making 5%, whether it's a million dollars or 10 million dollars, if a guy was making 10 million, you know, 5% interest, he should keep that money, no problem. The issue is about the, the excessive interest. The other problem we have in the model that I'm giving you is the guys that came in and out. So there's guys in 2016 that came in and earned 20, 25, 30% even. 10 million at 25%, he got out with 20 million in 2019. So the problem there, there's a little bit of a hole there and, and we probably need to have a discussion uh, about how to, you know, what do we do about those guys that came in and out? What do we do about the guys that was able to get the six or seven billion that Muhammad Zbib talks about that ran away? And I, I think that this is going to be a discussion that we continue to have because I, you know, I, I don't see any lightning fast developments on the policy front to actually, you know, get out in front of this problem. But it, it, it's something that all, all of these things require a robust discussion to happen. And thanks so much for joining us, Dan, to start this conversation or, or to continue it here on this program. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.